0: Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loblasengame. And if this is your first time meeting me, I am clean and sober 16 years, a drug and alcohol counselor, interventionist, and the co-founder of a telehealth company called Lion Rock Recovery that treats substance use disorder. Okay, let's get into it. Scott, what's my question for today?
1: Oh, we got a good one. I think it's a real conversation that we need to have. So the question is compassion for my addicted loved one, but they're being an asshole. Do you have a particularly asshole-y story from your own experience that you'd like to share?
0: I got a few. Okay, so there's one that comes to mind that kind of encompasses some of my using and a couple pieces of it, okay? At one point in my teens, I think maybe 15. I ran... Yeah, probably 15. I ran away with my ex-boyfriend. So I was dating someone else and my ex-boyfriend, I ran away with his mother.
1: As you do. As you do.
0: (laughs) As we do. I was very addicted. Like When I tell these stories, I'm like, Oh my God. So I was very addicted to cocaine at the time. My ex-boyfriend's mother. Her name was Rita. Rita was extremely addicted to methamphetamine. Okay, I did some methamphetamine here and there, but it really wasn't my drug of choice. Cocaine was my drug of choice. That's relevant here. The reason that's relevant is because Rita and I ran away and we went all over the Bay Area and then down to Mexico. And we ran out of cocaine and her drug of choice is methamphetamine. So I started smoking a lot of methamphetamine Okay, and doing some crazy things around that which we can get into another day
1: it's just it's a it's a coke and pepsi type situation right you know well
0: yes (laughs) but it turns turns out that pepsi really has different effects on you know psychosis right
1: psychosis oh, it's, it's, it's a little, that all thing we
0: you know it was high school don't we all <laughs> um so we run away together i'm a missing person my family is trying to find me my family's like we're looking for you know a 5 6 blonde green-eyed girl going across the border like trying to get out of the country right and so they're they're letting border patrol know all of this is nonsense anyway point is so i got like psychotic i mean just Crazy, whatever. And so they didn't find me, but somehow, for some reason, I got dropped off at my parents' house after being gone for a couple, I don't, I don't know, a week, two weeks. I don't know how long it was. And when I got dropped off at my house, so again, I'd been missing. My parents are terrified. It's awful. You know, I mean, the boyfriend, the ex boyfriend who didn't use was freaking out, whatever. Right. So all these people who care about me care about me. Got it. Sisters, etc. I get dropped off at my parents' house at 3 in the morning, no shoes on. And I walk into the front yard and there are... I mean, this is real. There were 100 people standing on the front lawn. Okay, Now, I understand there were actually no people on the front lawn. I get it. But I'm telling you, there were 100 people on the front lot. Like they were... And they just turned and looked at me.
1: Ooh, nope. I'll no never forget it. Mean,
0: I'll never forget it because they were there as clear as day, right? So I'm freaking out. So I run around the house and start knocking on my sister's door around the back of the house. And my sister has been instructed not to let me in the house. Now it's three in the morning. I'm terrified. I'm crying, saying there's people coming to get me. You need to let me in. I'm unsafe, knocking on the door. And my sister has been instructed not to let me in the house. I'm a missing person, right? So The point is, I'm holding these things in two places. How much my family cares, how much they care about me. I'm screaming that I'm in danger. Do not let her in the house. So she goes and gets my parents. I end up 5150 and it's a whole thing. But the point of that story... Is that my parents were extremely angry, extremely angry at my behavior, extremely worried, all the emotions, right? Like pissed, worried, I don't even, you know, compassion, I maybe don't hurt my kid, protective, all the things. And they're parenting to other kids. So they have to influence and talk about the decisions, right? So when you tell the younger siblings, you're saying something, right? You're giving them information about what's going on. I understand and I could could not believe, by the way, I was so angry. How could you not let me in the house? I was telling you I was in danger. I was telling you that people were coming to get me. Yeah, those people weren't there, but I didn't know that. And you didn't know that, but you didn't let me in the house, right? Yeah. At that point, they took me to the emergency room where I had a wine bottle opener and was like, I don't need to go in. And they're like, you're going into the psych ward. And I was like, absolutely not. But if I do, I need to bring this in with me. Sure. You You never know. You never know. I couldn't believe I ended up in the psych ward. I was like, me? I'm not psychotic. I'm using drugs. I'm so confused. Why am I here? And I tried to convince them to let me out. The nurses were like, honey, you're where you belong. (laughs) So at that point, right, like I'm not even thinking about my sister. Like I'm, that was, that was six hours ago. Life has changed. So, but I do remember being really shocked, like, really like looking through the glass on the window and going, you're not going to let me in. Like, holy shit. You're not going to let me in. How dare you? And really not understanding, which again, I just described the obviously things had progressed pretty far, right? So you can imagine all the shit that happened before that. And I still don't get it. My brain is having a whole other experience. Now, if you describe this person and then you look at my life for the last 16 years, they don't match. I'm not that person. I'm not the person you don't let into your house. I'm the person you let into your house to help to whatever. You know, I'm I mean trust- maybe,
1: maybe they let you in the house. It would be different reasons that they yeah, keep yeah, you yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly.
0: (laughs) what bad words are you going to teach my kids? (laughs) Yeah. But it's, it's like, you know, if you ask my parents, I'm not that person, but in those circumstances, when my brain is hijacked that way with those, you know, it's different with different substances too. I'm not really that exciting when I'm using opiates. I just like kind of sit there and drool. But when I take methamphetamine shit goes haywire, my parents would tell you that, I was not the same person. And I would tell you, I was not the same person. I would tell you that there were many times where I felt like I was possessed, like maybe I was schizophrenic. And when I found out that I had addiction, I was relieved. I was like that's good because that could have been something else real bad. And I was really scared. I was really scared that there was something else wrong with me. i was like, you know, could it be something else? So, you know, when people say like my loved ones being an asshole, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. And when we talk about stigma, if we don't mention like, I love, I was listening to someone talk about like, we need to reduce the stigma and we're just sick people trying to get well, which is true. We are sick people trying to get well. We're not bad people trying to get good. True. But we're also assholes when we're using, right? For real. We hurt people and we hurt the people closest to us. And when the people closest to us move further away, then we hurt whoever's next. And the reason that addiction is so deadly is because it hijacks this part of your brain that overrides all your ability to make those moral decisions. That's the point, right? It, you can't make other decisions. You can't make good decisions. And so you end up, if you repeat a behavior over and over again, it, it becomes who you are for a while. In the stigma conversation that we need to have with about addiction, about mental health, about all these things, when it comes to addiction, we have got to be honest so that we can be credible when we have the conversation, that we understand that the behavior out there. Leads people to not like us, and that's okay.
1: What were the kind of the messages that you feel like your parents were getting when they came and, you know met with you in treatment or things like that? Like, what were the things that they were being told along the way?
0: Okay. Well, so I want to acknowledge that I went to treatment over twenty years ago. Oh. That's horrible
1: to say. <laughs> and treatment doesn't really change though. That's the beauty of all kind of medical fields don't really change at all. They're just kind of, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: no. So 21 years ago, believe it or not, how we treated mental health and substance use disorder and behavioral issues in teens was different than how we treat it today. And our understanding of it was different. Our compassion around it was different. And they were un- not kind to us. As a teenager, I was put into programs that were their literal motto was, we're going to break you and then build you back up. For real. And that break you is a mental break, is an emotional break. Like they weren't talking about like boot camp making us run. They were talking about breaking us here. And what they didn't understand was like we were already broken. We were using because we were broken. We were using because we felt like that substance was going to be the glue that healed it all back together. That's what it felt like. And this will make me whole. This thing will make me feel better right and then it takes this whole other turn so what my parents received as information about how to deal with this you know depending on the treatment center we're talking about was very different than what you get today. Today is much more informed, is, is much more... Un, they understand a lot better. They see it as needing help and, and meeting those unmet needs. Trauma therapy, like there's a lot more. But when I was a teenager, they just told my parents that I was a liar and a cheat and a thief and that I needed to be broken.
1: So, we hope that there's not places that are telling people those sorts of things, but maybe there are, unfortunately. But, like, if they're showing up now, right? So, let's say they're visiting Ashley now. Let's say you're a, so you're your 18 year old self. And you're going to treatment now. What are the kinds of things that they're hearing that they need to do? Because I think for me, and maybe for people who are listening, let's say the parent situation I think is the most challenging one. Right? It's like I love this person so much. Like there's no option for me to sever this in some way. This is not a romantic relationship. This is not a friendship. This is you know this is forever. What does that look like when they've come back for the 15th time and this thing just keeps happening over and over again? Like if they were showing up at their treatment center now, what would the kinds of things they'd be telling those parents? To do
0: you know this is like sounds really cliche but we take an individualized approach and i think the individualized approach is really important because it depends on what's going on for that kid i worked on a case once with a young man who i did an intervention on and let me tell you in my heart of hearts i was like this is never gonna work like i <laughs> i literally was like i'm not gonna get him on the plane there's no way like i looked at i looked at this family and was like oh my god if you're listening please help got him on the plane he went to treatment he got sober but he was really struggling in treatment. And luckily he had this awesome therapist who was able to like, couldn't figure it out, couldn't figure it out. It was taking a while. He was doing all the things like the formulaic things based on whatever. And it turned out he had a traumatic brain injury that had never been diagnosed. And so his therapist, thank God, and I want to have her on the podcast. Uh, his therapist was like, "I've worked with TBIs before, traumatic brain injuries, and we need to do therapy a little bit differently, like this." And she knew how, and she changed the way she was doing therapy, and everything got better. It was crazy, and all she did was really change like the approach and and what they talked. Like it wasn't like a changed locations, went to a hospital, went to, you know, it was like a professional milieu change and he got better. And so that's an example of like, sometimes there's something not going right there's a there's trauma there's a physical issue there's a disability there's like there's all these different factors that are going on that are making them unsuccessful i like to look at it as like an unmet need right what is the need that addiction is meeting that nothing else has met That we can't find anything else to meet. And then also helping people get periods of of recovery. So I think that's the, you know, I, I just have to say that like any blanket comments that I make are tough because I really do believe in individualized care. I've seen so many different scenarios with families. The first thing they do is educate the parents loved ones, on what's going on in this person's brain. Because when you understand what is happening, and when I do an intervention, the first thing I do with everybody in the room is go through the brain. That's it. I don't even look at the person who's the addicted person. I'm like, yeah, you just sit here. You're all gonna, you know. And I, I bring a whiteboard with me. I don't do it anymore much, but I bring a whiteboard with me and I show because it's really important to understand that because the shit that addicts and alcoholics and addicted people do is so... Confusing and so strange and so, you know, mean or unkind or whatever that it really needs. This brain explanation is so helpful. So it explains so many things. And quickly, what it says is the part of your brain that controls all your autonomic functions, right? The things that your body does without you having to think about it, you know, your breathing, your heart beating, sleep, sex, like all these survival things, right? That's the part of the brain that the addiction takes over. The survival part of your brain, literally. And so the same part of your brain that says, if you do not breathe, if you do not take in oxygen right now, right? That feeling, hold your breath and try not to take another breath. Your body overrides you, right? You have to pass out. Your body overrides you. That's the same part of the brain that the addiction is controlling. That's the same part of your brain that the loved one is trying to override, right? So imagine, this is the best way I like to think about addiction. Imagine you're underwater. There are these bottles of oxygen. And every time you take one of those bottles okay, I can breathe. I can breathe. I'm underwater. I can't breathe without this thing, right? And you keep taking those things. And everybody's telling you that if you take those bottles of air, of oxygen, and you throw them away, that you'll be able to breathe underwater, that you, given enough time, won't feel like you're drowning. So when you get to addiction treatment, the bottles of air... Go away. Those are our substances that that's how we've been breathing, right? That's what's been talking to that primal area of our brain. And you get to treatment and they take that away and you're underwater and you're supposed to take a big, deep breath. But your brain is saying, you're underwater. You can't breathe underwater. You don't breathe underwater. And as you inhale, you feel like you're drowning. And people are saying, you got to keep doing it. You got to keep doing it. You got to keep doing it it's the most terrifying thing because your brain doesn't know that you're not underwater and you can actually breathe but let me tell you it feels like you're underwater and it feels like those bottles of you know alcohol or whatever are your oxygen because that's what the brain is telling you that's what we're dealing with so imagine that's crazy that situation right you can just feel the fear of like inhaling all that water that's what's going on in their brain. And so you're trying, and depending on how long they've been using, what substances they've been using, you're talking about loss of executive function. You're talking about literal brain fog or brain injury. I mean, there's so many things. So that's the first place we do. We look at like, okay, what is this medically? And then we go into behaviorally. What are the behaviors that as family members allow us to both support... And also protect ourselves from the addiction and the behavior of the addiction. And that's the teaching. Al-Anon is really great. Nar-Anon, Al-Anon, they talk about that a lot. About how do you love someone who is in this place? And there's another way I like to... Another analogy that I like to use for that, which is... First of all, if you're a parent, there is no... in. Intuitive addiction reaction that a parent is supposed to have that you're missing, right? It is not intuitive to help someone with addiction. It's not intuitive. So, if you're not trained to do that, if you haven't spent time training and understanding and going through it and seeing it, it is totally reasonable and frankly expected that you don't know how to deal with this. And you should expect that your intuition on this, in terms of like what exactly to do, is inadequate, right? This is a specialist problem so the way that i look at it or the way that we talk about it is your intuition you have a child you're standing on a dock your child is drowning in the water below your feet every parent who's in their right mind is going to jump into the water Because your child is drowning at your feet. You're standing on the dock. You know how to swim. You're jumping in, right? Maybe even if you don't know how to swim, you're jumping in because it's your child. Addiction is the thing that's causing them to drown. With addiction, what the actual... right? That's the intuitive jump in the water. Unfortunately, with addiction, you start to drown with them. What we do is we throw down a life ring. And that the first thing the addict does is start complaining about the color of the life ring, right? This is not the right color of life ring. That is... I can't... Are you kidding? You think that thing's going to save me? It's blue. It's supposed to be red. And then we start arguing about the size of the life ring, right? That's the process. It's like this pull. They're drowning and they're arguing about the color of the life-saving you know, vehicle. The families, they throw the life ring out. They keep the life ring in the water. But the affected person, the substance use or whatever in this you know, case, the addicted person, they have to grab it. They have to care enough about their life to put their hand on the life ring. That's the requirement. It's too hard to get out of that water if you're not willing to put your hand on the life ring. There are too many days in a row where you will want to take your hand off that life ring, or you will want to get out of the center of that life ring. There are too many days that if you're doing it for someone else, or if you don't really want it, that you're not going to be able to get yourself out of that. You're not going to be able to survive, so to speak. So the intuitive thing to jump in the water with them is actually not what we recommend. We recommend keeping that life raft as close to them as possible, right next to them. And sometimes when I do interventions and someone leaves and they're unwilling to go to treatment, what we do is we have the family, the family will say, look, if you are not willing to get any type of help, we cannot participate in you destroying yourself. But the moment... That you want help. The moment that the second you pick up the phone, you call this phone number, this person is going to help you get into treatment. This person, you know, you carry this number around with you, you tattoo it on your arm. Here's their card. The moment we will be there, we will be at the family weeks, we will pay for it, we will blah, 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 blah. We will organize it. The moment you want help. And wanting help means the action involved in that, not just like, I want help and then, but I'm only willing to do it this way or blah, 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 blah. The moment. And then the family is there, boom, they're there. But they're not going to contribute to the using. They're not going to support that in any way. That's my intuitive parent talk when I talk to parents about like, it's okay that you don't know what to do because I don't know anyone who is born with the expertise of how to deal with this.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's really helpful because yeah, I can say that, you know, if it was my kids, I'm jumping in the water. like That would be my intuition, 100%. So I think that's a great analogy and a great way of putting it. And yeah, I guess we'll just try to find more ways to keep the life raft close for them. If people want to... Okay, let's say... They said, Ashley, this was all really helpful. I would need to understand it more. I still don't quite get it. I still... I can't get there. Where would be the first place you'd send them? They may have to go through 50 resources eventually. But where's the first one you would send them to?
0: The first thing I would do is if you have a child or partner or whatever who's experiencing some sort of addiction, whatever that looks like, I would go to two different types of meetings. I would go to... So like, let's say it's alcoholism. I would go to an AA meeting and I would go to an Al-Anon meeting. And those are open AA meetings. And the reason I would do that is because you'll start to hear... You'll hear people talk in ways that reflect behaviors that your loved one is doing. And they will add context. And when you hear enough of the people talk about it, you you may start to understand little things or start to see patterns, right? Because we love to think that we're unique. We're terminally unique, as we say, but we're not. And these are known, understood patterns of behavior. And if you go and listen in these meetings to people struggling with this, you will hear things that they say. So I would suggest going. you know, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, Sex and Love Anonymous, Gambling. You know, those are the main places that are things talking about that. And then Al-Anon, Nar-Anon, these are places where the family members who are dealing with loved ones can go. And I'm not saying this... I want to be clear. I'm not saying this because I think that everybody has to be part of a 12-step program. I'm saying this because it's a really accessible... Open meetings are super accessible. They're right there. They don't cost you anything. You can go and you can start to info gather. You can start to expose yourself to what this is, what the language is, that kind of thing. After that... I always suggest, you know, and again, I understand that this sounds convenient, but this is truly a specialist issue, right? Like, you, no matter what type of cancer treatment you want, whether it's holistic or you're going to go the chemo route, you're still going to find someone who specializes in. Holistic cancer curing and nutrition for cancer, you're going to, whatever it is, like you are going, you know, chemo, blah, 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 oncologist, even if it's alternative, you're still going to find a specialist to help you with that. This is a life and death situation. This is a cancer that moves a lot faster. So if that is... Even if just talking to them, even if you don't hire them, calling people who have experience with this, who've done this with a loved one, listening to podcasts where they talk about the stories of what people do... Start to info gather, start to talk to people, explain your situation, and they'll start to give you an idea of where to go. You are always welcome to reach out to me. My email is ashley at Lion Rock Recovery. Email me. I respond. And happy to answer questions on the podcast that other people may have, point you in the right direction. There are so many specialists out there. We are working really hard on this. My company has helped thousands of people to recover. And we have a good understanding of how we can help people and we know what alternatives are out there. So reach out, reach out. We can point you in the right direction. If you had a plumbing problem, you'd call a plumber. Just reach out, do that. But I would start with the meetings so that you can easy, no barriers to entry. Just go and listen.
1: Love it. Love it. This is something that we're going to be doing on a regular basis. These Q&A episodes. We'd love to hear from you. If you find us on social media at courage to change underscore podcast, you can send us an email at podcast at lionrock.life. You can email Ashley. She just gave you her personal email address. Shoot your question and it might make it in one of these episodes and you can hear us talk about it a little bit more. Ashley, anything you want to leave the people with?
0: If you're going through this, I want to reach out and give you a big virtual hug. This stuff is really hard, really, really hard. And it's so much easier said than done. And I get that. I get that. I have little kids and if they end up needing help, I will need a specialist. Not because I don't know the information, but because when your heart is involved, it's so difficult to override jumping into the water. I mean, I'm telling you right now with my kids, I we jump in the water. That's what you do. Right. And if, you know, of course, someone would pull me out and be like, this is what you need to do. Or and I'd say, I'm going to stay in the water over here and I'll throw the life ring here. But I'm not getting out of the water. So it's not that I don't expect this to be easy or any of those things. And I know how painful, how painful this is. So I just I really, really, really want people to feel that from me and understand that I, I don't want them to ever think that I think this is easy or just do these things and everything, you know, you'll just get over it. It'll be fine. I do this because I want to help people. And that's, you know, my mission on this planet is to help people. So if you need help and there's something I can do to be helpful, please let me know. If this podcast has been helpful for you are, you know, the podcast currency is to leave reviews and ratings and subscribe. So please, if the spirit moves you subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform that you use to get your podcasts, uh, five-star reviews help any kind of written reviews All of that stuff is that's how we can be supported in on this platform. So grateful to you for your help and your support and just listening. And I'm sending you all big hugs. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.Life. LionRock.Life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.